from the Mercy One Studio. Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. I'm Dr. Bud Marr. We are coming to you live this Wednesday from these United States of America. Me, I am over here in Des Moines, Iowa, where... I'm the Director of Mission and Ministry at Mercy College of Health Sciences and the Executive Vice President of the Newman Idea. You can see what we're up to at mchs.edu and newmanidea.org. Bud, out in Pittsburgh, tell the good people what you do out in the land of bridges. Yes, I'm out here in Pittsburgh as Director of the National Institute for Newman Studies. You can find out about all of our work at newmanstudies.org. And if I'm not mistaken, your work uh, has been, uh, you've been doing Advent talks or something like this, right, recently, if I if Facebook is not lying to me? Yeah, we've been doing an Advent series, and this one is actually fairly easy for me to prepare, but it's a lot of fun. We walk through some of Newman's sermons that he preached during that period, and uh, New- Newman was a great homeless. There's a lot of rich treasures there. In fact, if any of our listeners are thinking of diving into St. John Henry Newman's works, I would start with his sermons. Now, that'd be a good place to start, and especially with Advent and, uh, and Lent, actually. He, he, he does the two preparatory seasons uh, extremely well. Here in Des Moines, we are wrapping up at Mercy College of Health Sciences. That just got done, and I know, Bud, uh, you probably had some papers to grade. But we're getting into that fun in-between time. We're brought to you, as always, by Mercy College of Health Sciences, who underwrites our show. So uh, it's a little quiet around the halls. Uh, people... Uh, maybe getting stuff around before Christmas vacations and whatnot. But I know that the students have worked hard and they have uh, you know, the, the, the rest necessary so they can get their minds focused and uh, really get back into spring. But at Mercy College of Health Sciences, uh, people can uh, start uh, any semester. We have fall, spring, and summer courses and entry points for all sorts of things. Uh, and uh, again, all you have to do is go to mchs.edu uh, to check out what we're up to and how you can be involved at Mercy College of Health Sciences. Yeah, it's always good to wrap up the semester. I think our, our good friend John Wynn says he likes to sunset things, you know, like there's a time for everything. And I, I may have mentioned a couple weeks ago, I had some really good students this year. So grading was not too painful when the students are doing high quality work. Oh, wow. That uh, sounds like if I, I'm not saying this is exactly the thing, but you may be cursing yourself for a terrible semester in spring uh, by loudly proclaiming about how great your semester was this year and how easy it was to grade. So just pointing out that you've made a horrible mistake, bud. Oh, you kind of have the George Costanza outlook. Like on Seinfeld, he never wanted to be too successful. That's right. Because he thought he'd pay for it. Yeah, right. <laughs> if I, he ever made it big. That's bad theology. And so, since it's at the top of the show, it's not a big deal. But uh, there is a sneaking part of me that wonders, uh, at least in terms of like students and grading, if you go, man, that, that was an easy semester and there weren't too many problems. And I got all the grading in really quick. Uh, then you got to worry for spring coming around. Uh, but hey, that's not for a few weeks. So, Bud, you got any big plans about uh, the Christmas break and traveling and whatnot? Oh, yeah. If any uh, listeners out there are willing to pray for us, uh, Rachel and I are taking the six kids uh, on two flights tomorrow to get from Pittsburgh to Omaha. So I would appreciate your intercessory prayers if, my, if, I, if, if I cross your mind tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> What uh? What's the intervening airport that gets to house the Mars for a little bit? 
Uh, it's Midway. We prefer St. Louis. Whenever you go through Chicago, you're really rolling the dice, but Midway is preferable to O'Hare. So hopefully there's no snags. And looking at the old radar, right, it looks like it'll be a good weather day to be traveling. Yep. So my uh, mom and dad have been married 40 years now, and so they decided that they needed to go take a 40-year uh, anniversary uh, tr- trip. And for, <laughs> they chose Hawaii which I know a lot of people would choose Hawaii. I wouldn't have ever expected my parents to choose Hawaii. Never really talked, heard them talk about it. Um, but they decided that that's where they're going. The only plans I've heard them say is they're going to go to the beach and then Pearl Harbor, you know, so romantic. But um, the, uh, the trip, because evidently a whole host of, a certain type of plane got grounded. I think it was 767s. And so that was their first planes out west, so they had to rebook on Delta. So, bud, they go from Tulsa, Oklahoma, to Atlanta, to Los Angeles, to Hawaii. They were on the plane like if they took a trip to Rome. They were on planes that long yesterday. And uh, that that that's what you get for having vacations and enjoying yourself, is what I told my dad. <laughs> oh, Wow. That's pretty intense. And like you said, I don't know if I would have picked out Hawaii for your parents, but I'm glad they were able to do something special for their 40th anniversary. What's crazy is that each trip got longer. I mean, first of all, Tulsa to Atlanta is not short. And then, and then they flew across the United States, and then they flew halfway across the Pacific Ocean. And uh, really, really just only a way that it seems like my parents could, could pull that off. But uh, it sounds like they're having fun, and uh, it's certainly warmer out there, so I hope they have a good time. Today on the show, we're going to have a good time. Maybe not 13 hours to Hawaii a good time, uh, but we'll have a good time nonetheless. We have uh, two different books uh, that we're going to talk about and preview. Uh, but if you don't mind, real quick, just uh, the author authors and, and the, the books that we're going to cover uh, the first and second half of the show. Yeah, we have a jam-packed uh, Christmas special episode for you. The first half of the show, we're talking to Anthony Walks and John Schaff. They both teach at Duquesne University here in Pittsburgh. But they've written this book, Age of Anxiety, Meaning, Identity, and Politics in 21st Century Film and Literature. And it really gets into, um, well, we'll say, I know we're short on time, so I'll save a description when we get back from the break. The second half of the show will be Leroy Husengay, who's just an amazing biblical scholar. And he's talking about his new book, Behold the Christ, Proclaiming the Gospel of Matthew. So we've had Leroy on in the past talking about his book on the Gospel of Mark. Today will be his new book on the Gospel of Matthew. It's going to be good stuff, folks, so please stick around. This is The Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr will be back right after this. The Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr joining you this Wednesday. But we've got two guests on the show on the line today. If you don't mind introducing them, uh, throw it over to you. Yeah, our guests this morning are Anthony Walks, who's Assistant Professor of Rhetoric, Communication Ethics, and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition at Duquesne University, and his um, colleague John Schaff, who's Professor of Political Science at Northern State University. Their new book is Age of Anxiety, Meaning, Identity, and Politics in 21st Century Film and Literature. Anthony and John, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having having us us on. Yeah, so just diving right into the book for the sake of time, uh, could you guys tell us a little bit about uh, the inspiration for the book and what you try to to treat within its pages? Well, I think uh, if Anthony doesn't mind, I'll start. Sorry. 
<laughs> no, I'll, 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 what, uh, I think the inspiration for the, uh, for the book was, you know, I had been writing some stuff on popular culture, which the, uh, uh, editor of the series with Lexus and Lexington Books, uh, Lee Trepinia had noticed and asked me if I wanted to turn some of the stuff into a book. And I contacted Anthony, my old friend and colleague, uh, whether he wanted to join me. And I think what we're trying to achieve, uh, and Anthony can jump in and, and add to this, is I think Anthony and I detected that in our modern age of individualism and the idea of autonomy and self-creation, this is supposed to be liberating us and freeing us and bringing about some sort of brave new world. Uh, but instead, as the title of the book indicates, uh, inspired by W.H. Auden, uh, what we live in is this age of anxiety, far from finding all sorts of, of meaning in self-creation, people find themselves lost and directionless. Uh, and so we kind of diagnose that with some of the chapters in the book, and then I think maybe add some correctives or suggestions in other chapters in the book. And if Anthony wants to add anything to that, he can have at it. Yeah, uh, for me, part of where this came from as well was uh, Dr. Schaff and I were in a reading group together at the local Newman Center um, when I was in Aberdeen, and uh, really what happened was a lot of the material we were reading kind of was coming together, and um, this is when Dr. Schaff, after I had moved away, had said, hey, we've been working on some of this, and we brought it together. And for me, um, what I think is kind of the quote-unquote original thing about what we're doing is that it's in line with a great tradition of people that are trying to diagnose the ills of the age, and so it, it, it's nothing original on that end, except for, for me, it's one of the first books that I think kind of brings all of these voices together and then extends them into the, the 21st century, especially as it relates to our, our culture right now. So, so that's, that's kind of paradoxical to think about, the fact that our society is so focused on generating freedom. And part of the idea around that is freeing people from what in some minds are, are constraints, you know, connections to institutions or listening to authorities. But you guys actually begin to argue in the book that what this ha has produced is a lot of anxiety. I mean, could you talk more about the rootlessness that a lot of Americans feel um, in today's context? Yeah, I'll let John start on that because my thought is is moving forward to also how that connects with kind of our, our final chapter. So, let, John, if you want, you can kind of set sure. us up with that. Yeah, I, I think it has a lot to do with how one defines freedom. And at a certain point in the, in the book, we make a distinction drawing on the work of the political theologian William Cavanaugh between what we can call an Augustinian sense of freedom and a more what would probably be the more modern conception, a more, if you will, libertarian conception of freedom. And that, that modern conception of freedom is precisely the ability to do what we want to, if you will, choose without any constraints. Where, But Augustine's concept of freedom, which naturally is the, the, the concept that is uh, in, more in line with, uh, with the Church, is uh, freedom means the ability to choose the right thing. And so when we simply indulge ourselves and we choose without constraint and we simply indulge, that is more kind of a slavery than it is freedom. And so uh, as we uh, simply are, are liberated from all these institutions, from many constraints, what we find is not freedom but is actually a kind of slavery. And also I think precisely because 
what our culture doesn't really tell us is doesn't give us much guidance as to how to choose well. What is a good choice? If a good choice is simply defined as a choice that is an act of the will, that doesn't really tell me much about how do I, what is the content of my choice. And so uh, I think what we're arguing is that there are, there are institutions, there are habits, there are traditions that we can, that, uh, that we can, that help form us and help, help us to decide can we cho- are we choosing well or choosing poorly. And so as our culture gives us a bevy of choices, we sometimes find ourselves paralyzed and not knowing what, of the thousands of, say, choices in television, what's the right thing to choose or the thousand choices of breakfast cereal, how, how do I choose well, or of the thousands of, of different alternatives of, of uh, life that are given to me, how do I choose well? And so I think we ultimately point to things like faith, family, uh, narrative as ways that help us help can help guide people into making good choices. And as Anthony can can add add, add from there. Yeah, and, and so I I piggyback on top of that. In part of the problem with the the age that we see is when you look at that autonomous self that has been promoted since the time of the Enlightenment. The culture is kind of schizophrenic in that our political structures and the the economy assume that and push it further forward. But um, within not only uh, the popular culture, which we examine in in the book, um, but within academia, both in in kind of liberal arts, post structural, post modern studies, and then also within the sciences, you get the rejection of the autonomous self and the embracement of of different forms of determinism, whether it be genetic or on the postmodern side, linguistic. And so you get this whole denial of the self, and so that, that, that creates a whole other realm of anxiety where, um, where we feel like we're told that our choices are all that matter, and yet, ironically, none of them matter because they're equally not just arbitrary, but they're illusions because the self doesn't exist itself. And so this is where uh, we use, in contrast to that autonomous self or this kind of determined self, whether linguistic or biological, we use quite a bit of uh, Alistair McIntyre to discuss the self as, as situated being within within the world, within time, and within uh, relationship with other people, which kind of really put, puts into perspective, I think, our, our answer that we kind of give by the end of the book is, as John was already alluding to, the necessity of reaching out to to other people in in actually having strong discussion with them based upon ideas found within um, great literature. So we talk about the importance of the the need for understanding oneself and developing a true self that is situated, neither autonomous or determined, in uh, the value of the liberal arts and reading good books and reading good books with other people. Um, and then the last thing that I would add is the importance of, of um, being a part of practices that engage the uh, the real world itself, which is why in one of my classes in, in at Duquesne, I require students to do a leisure project where they have to begin to investigate in practice a, a practice for a leisure project. Hey guys, this is Bo at the studio. Um, one of the things that I find uh, very interesting about the, the book, and of course I haven't got to, to read it, so I'm going off of uh, what Bud's talked about it with me, and then also um, the introductions and stuff like this that I've been able to track down. Um, but engaging in you know new 
realms that have been uh, found in communications and rhetoric studies. Um, I think about the concept of, you know, sort of media ecology and the idea that we're saturated in sort of um, entire ecosystems of how the world is presented to us through things like movie and literature, but in really the sort of near 24-7 attention-grabbing interaction with the medium of media. And so I think about, with everything you're talking about, anxiety and the production of anxiety and whether, you know, myself, am I free or not? Um, What starts to be represented to us um, in a sort of elongated way and threaded in all sorts of different manners uh, starts to speak of this. I'm thinking immediately, of course, as uh, the new Star Wars is upon us and already people are predetermining whether everyone should like it or not. The thing that I'm actually getting at is I flew United Airlines a few weeks ago and they changed the safety videos to include the new Star Wars elements in it because you know, Lord forbid that you have five minutes where you look at a video that just tells you how to escape a plane, like they have to actually advertise something to you. Um, but it makes me think, right, that, you know, if they're going to intertwine entertainment in safety videos on an airplane or like on that little screen when you're waiting for your credit card transaction to go through, they really are presenting a sort of full-out uh, game plan about making you feel a certain way. So I always think it's interesting that people are absolutely dumbfounded that these movies that really speak to anxiety or, uh, you know, you, you talk about uh, utilizing Wally in your book, right? Like this sense of being lost in the cosmos to steal from Walker Percy uh, or whatever your chapter three, Kentucky Aristotelians in space, which is very much interesting to me. Um, can you speak to that idea that anxiety, we start to see it everywhere because everywhere is now a field of interacting with us. Um, well, it, one of the places, so you, you mentioned media ecology, and we have, I wouldn't say the book is, is written um, per se from a media, well, I, I would say it is in many senses a media ecological perspective without um, having to delve directly into that. And one of the ways that I see that is many of the different media ecologists that we actually cite in the book um, layer that within the idea of, of distraction. Um, it's, it's all noise that, that's all around us. In the worst part of the noise itself is, as, as you're saying, and at least I think you're, you're asking there, is, is part of the problem is, is that we're socially engineering distraction into existence itself. Um, to the point where I, I don't advise anybody go and download this app. Um, but one of the things that the quote unquote youths are using today is TikTok. And this is little like less than 60 second videos, um, that you just swipe up to go to the next thing. And oftentimes many of these are, are absurdist and nihilistic and offensive. Um, but, but the thing calls out because I'm so distracted now. It calls out to me saying, I don't even have time for a YouTube video anymore. I just want to be able to, to leave the anxiety, the problems, the work that I have to do and just zone out. And so one of the things that we talk about in the book using um, media ecologists like um, Father Walter Ong, and then not a media ecologist, but in Cardinal Seurat's new book, not newest book, but his book on silence, is the need to, to push back against those socially engineered sites of distraction and in, in thereby causing anxiety is the need to, to 
re-engage with the contemplative life, to, to be able to leave um, all of the noise and chaos of society and, and have time of silence and, and reflection. Um, I when, so I don't know if that really speaks to what you're asking me, John. Can can yeah, piggyback well, on I think when, one of the things note from the you know that United Airlines example is notice how the yeah. the airline commercial, you know, the airline safety um, uh, video becomes a commercial for Star Wars. So one of the things so a, a thinker that has greatly influenced both Anthony and me is Matthew Crawford mm-hmm. in his book The yep. World Beyond Your Head. Yep, exactly. He talks about the atten- the attentional comments, right? And the way that our attention is something that is being commodified. And so your attention is there watching this video ostensibly to keep you from dying in the event of a plane crash, and within it is a commercial for Star Wars. Uh, and that's sort of, and so the, the way that, or the way that even with something like TikTok that, that Anthony brings up, you know, the, the, the people who make so many of our apps, they know how our, our, neuro, our neurology, our, our, our neurochemistry works. And they know how to get us, uh, if you will, addicted. That's a technical term, which I use advisedly. But nonetheless, that sense of I've watched this, I'll watch one more. I'll watch one more. And I think all of us can, mm. can identify with the idea that oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch this YouTube or I'm going to get on Twitter. The next thing you know, you're going, where the heck did the last hour go? Uh, and they <laughs> sort of know this. Uh, and this is how they make their money is by commodifying your eyeballs. And so we shouldn't be naive to think that, that uh, this is all just simply benign, but it's part of the commercialization of our attention. And so we have to make, you know, I think, an act of volition, an act of will um, to, sort of to, to develop silence, to enter into silence. Uh, as you know, Anthony mentions, Cardinal Seurat's book, you know, to, to set aside time or to be extremely uh, intentional about how we use our devices and our technology, because every everywhere we go and everything we do, the blessing, the curse of our technologies, it goes wherever we go, uh, and so we have to take at this point, I think, an almost extraordinary extraordinary act of the will to to set it aside and say, I'm going to take five minutes to be bored and to just let my brain think. I'm glad Dr. Schaff brought up the idea of boredom because that's where I was going to say I think it's the most important site where anybody listening to this, if they found it uh, meaningful, would be to find those sites of boredom. What do you do with that? I'm standing in line, standing on an elevator. Do I go directly to my phone? Um, because we talk about that using Crawford in terms of the quote-unquote desubjectivization, where these things draw us out of ourselves, our anxiety for a tiny little bit of a moment when we're bored. And it, it doesn't develop who we are. It just distracts distracts us from the real questions that that, that should emerge from boredom, um, which is why Crawford will talk about leisure pro- projects, if you will, being a site for not desubjectivization or what he calls the annihilation of in, of the self, but a site for developing the self. And, and the way I put it is, is when you when you have activities that you're able to work on that are outside of the, the work, the drama, the anxiety of life, what you do is you find ways that your, your mind is able to rest in your body. And it's a completely different way of experiencing, well, reality itself by being allowed to, to rest in yourself instead of that annihilation of the self. And so they're um, diametrically opposed ways of dealing with the very small moments in our lives or being able to carve um, places in our lives to be able to say, no, I'm going to make a space for an hour to be able to do this important thing. So, 
As you guys are speaking, I hear resonances of, you've already mentioned Cardinal Sarah and Matthew Crawford, even Alistair McIntyre, I think is kind of behind this a bit. But I know um, one struggle for Christians in today's age is how do we confront what we're facing without sort of like trying to find a golden age or a safe space that maybe like a sort of option that doesn't exist. And I, I know we just have, we really just have like two or three minutes left, but could you talk sort of about navigating like at, in your families or in the communities that you guys are a part of, how are you kind of going about this without giving the impression like we can sort of build a time warp and just go back in time and, and sort of transcend this cultural moment? Yeah, if I can, if, if if I I can speak start. to that. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll say I'll be really fast, and Anthony can jump in. As I would just say two things: one, you know, the, the the book is a popular culture book in some sense. So we look at things like Downton Abbey, Wall-E, zombie films, uh, the HBO show Westworld, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, the movies Silence and Hacksaw Ridge. And part of it is, I think, as we, you know, in, in, as families, as individuals, as we engage a popular culture, one of the re- reasons we wrote this book is. We want to take popular culture and put it within an intellectual tradition. And so I think people just simply have to be more thoughtful about all this stuff, including, like I said, TV shows and movies, these things that surround us and that we all sort of enjoy. Can we be smarter about this? Can we be more uh, intentional? And part of that is educating ourselves. Is let's, let's put these things, as we do in the book, the whole point is to take these pop culture artifacts and put them in an intellectual tradition and to make sense of them. And then... Also, I would just simply say, as Anthony was sort of alluding to earlier, is, is cultivating habits and practices uh, that bring us outside ourselves, whether it's gardening, carpentry, playing the piano. Uh, certainly prayer life would be, would be huge. Are we praying every day? Do I have disciplines in my life that take me away from the hurly-burly of 21st century life and can sort of let my soul be at rest? And I'll let Anthony take it from there. And I'll wrap up very, very quickly because I know we're we're out of time. Um, but I would say uh, twofold: one, to piggyback off of, of Dr. Schaff, as we develop those things in our life, to to look at Dietrich von Hildebrand's understanding of the development of the self. In many senses, we become an environment for other people, and so as you develop those sites of of old parity from the technological age within your own life, one then becomes that same sort of an environment for other people to experience. And in that way, one can become a witness as well to um, meaningful, purposeful life and in, in how that is grounded by um, Christianity. And the last thing that I would point towards is um, the various traditions of Christianity. I would cite that we should look to one of our chapters on, on faith, and that it's uh, we, we need to reconceptualize what we understand faith as. And so Dr. Schaff and I, in that chapter, look at the importance of faith and reason functioning together um, intellectually and faith not being just simply an emotivistic or in, in a rational acceptance of belief in God. And so I would say become sites for other people, and we also have to figure out what is the reasonableness of what is... Um, faith, and then, then we can engage with other people. But you guys studying Newman would, <laughs> I think, be very uh, familiar with that sort of a project. <laughs> the book is Age of Anxiety, Meaning, Identity, and Politics in 21st Century Film and Literature. Anthony and John, thank you so much. We'll have to have you back on the show, but thank you again for coming on and talking about your new book. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. All right. This is The Uncommon Good, and we'll be back after these messages. <laughs> 
back to the Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Mara joining you this Wednesday. Thank you for listening to the show. Up next, we have our good friend Leroy Husengay, who uh, he's been on the show before. Uh, he, well, we went to the same uh, school, Bud, him and I, and then he is now, uh, one, I'm, I'm going to give uh, a, a, an interpretation of what I'd call it, Grand Poobah of Theology at University of Mary up in North Dakota, but certainly a book uh, writer uh, that's very popular, popularizing ways that people can delve deeply into the New Testament. His new book, Behold the Christ, Proclaiming the Gospel of Matthew, is out recently, and we all want you very much to go look on Amazon for his book. Leroy, welcome to the show again. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So last time we had you on, you know, we of course talked about your book about Mark, uh, and uh, evidently you've done a good enough job, but now people, I mean, are you are you now officially signed up for um, all four, right? You know, I guess it wouldn't be uh, a, a trilogy, whatever the quadrilogy is, but you're going to you're gonna have a, a Luke and a, a, a John one at some point too, right? Well, you know, formally I haven't done the uh, proposal and the contract and all that. I think at this point, uh, having written two, it would be, um, it wouldn't be fitting not to write the, uh, you know, the volume volume on Luke. Unfortunately, I'd have a couple years to do that before Luke uh, starts to dominate the lectionary in uh, year C. There you go. Well, I never, you know, I just in this year of like Star Wars, and we're having like the fourteenth, you know, movie. I figured. <laughs> so no, um, well. On that note alone, right, so Mark, that's your first one. Um, we, we talked about on the show about, you know, all sorts of ways in which Mark is definitively um, very Mark, and I don't know how else to say this. It's, it's leanness, the sort of power, the sort of speed and vitality of it. And so you switch to Matthew. Uh, Matthew, of course, historically has all sorts of uh, different ideas in the Catholic world pinned to it, that maybe it's the first gospel or that it has this sort of primacy of place in the liturgy. There's arguments about this. Um, but what you don't hear people talking about necessarily in the popular way like you do with Mark is the sort of literary character um, of the book of Matthew. I'm guessing you think that that's uh, a failing on our part. When it comes to reading the book of Matthew and diving deep into the book of Matthew, what are some of the almost literary qualities that strike you about the book? Yeah, well, there's there's two ways of thinking about literary qualities. Uh, you know, one is the uh, the surface structure or the outline of the book, and the other would be the plot. In terms of the uh, structure of the book, um, Matthew is pretty uh, obvious, pretty apparent, pretty open if you try to outline it. You've got, uh, you know, the uh, genealogy and birth of Jesus and the escape from Herod to Egypt with the Magi coming to Jerusalem and all that, and the beginnings of Jesus' public ministry, and that... uh, you know, kind of matches with the end of the gospel, you know, the passion narrative, the end of uh, Jesus' mission and ministry. And then between the uh, those bookends, the beginning and endings, you've got uh, five big discourses uh, where Jesus just delivers teaching. And between those, you've got four sections of um, action where Jesus uh, works miracles, engages in some controversies, uh, so on and so forth. In terms of the plot, uh, in some ways, Matthew's story is a is a tragedy. He's uh, presented Jesus is presented as the Messiah come to save the uh, Jewish people, and of course, right off the bat in chapter two, with Herod and all the Jewish leadership, uh, Jesus gets rejected, 
well, these pagan magi are actually worshiping him. And so you get this great kind of reversal in Matthew where Jesus' people largely reject him, and so he turns around and founds the church as a remnant community within Israel. And then when you get to the end of the story, uh, that church is open not only to Jews but also to Gentiles. And so the church ends up becoming the locus of uh, God's mission to the, to the world going forward. Leroy, one phrase from the description of the book that jumped out to me was the claim that, um, well, you discuss in the book that Jesus founded a rigorous religion with rich rituals. And uh, that's sometimes been contested in New Testament studies, right? I think of uh, Loasi's famous remark that Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom and what arrived was the church. What do you see in Matthew about um, like Jesus actually treating or founding a sort of like institution with rituals that would be sustained over time? Yeah, you know, the first thing to say is that when certain scholars want to argue that Jesus had nothing to do with dogma or theology, nothing to do with a church, and certainly nothing to do with a church structure like bishops, priests, and deacons, the first thing to say is that usually they're not really reading the Gospels. They're trying to use the Gospels as source material, and they go behind the Gospels, and then they say, you know, 80 or 90 percent of what's in the Gospels didn't really happen. Someone made it up later. But, ah, the real Jesus, whom we've unearthed, you know, looked like this wandering, cynic, peasant philosopher or something that doesn't square with the Gospels at all. Um, and, you know, that sort of approach has come under a lot of academic fire lately, and for good reason. Uh, if you actually read the Gospels, you know, I think fairly, you know, you will see, you know, Jesus' ritual, uh, Jesus is oriented towards uh, ritual and religion left, right, and center. Uh, you know, even the Gospel of Mark, which a lot of people, you know, think has a Gentile orientation, you know, presents Jesus as a faithful Orthodox Jew that wears the tassels, you know, that dresses the part, um, and in Matthew even even more so. One of my favorite verses is Matthew twenty three twenty three, where Jesus is excoriating the scribes and Pharisees, and he lays into them for tithing uh, mint, dill, and cumin, uh, while neglecting the weightier, weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and fidelity. And then he says, and everybody misses this, you should have done the former without neglecting the latter. And he's like, yeah, it's good to tie. It's good to obey the law of Moses, but you're forgetting the bigger picture. So for Jesus, it's both and. It's exterior and interior. It's ritual and heart. Those things go hand in hand. And of course, you know, the, the biggest thing that people really shouldn't overlook, you know, Lutherans are pretty good at not overlooking this, but other than that, um, other bodies not so much. Jesus founds, well, Jesus um, in the Gospel institutes the Eucharist, and he instituted, institutes it as a sacrifice. Um, it's the Passover meal, and he's transforming that sacrificial Passover meal into his sacrificial Eucharistic meal. Um, you know, it's there plain as the summer sun if you don't have kind of a modernist, anti-ritual, anti-sacrificial, anti-Catholic agenda going on. Uh, by the way, side note, uh, just we're all converts who are currently here. Um, is anybody else surprised that, like, someone hasn't made, like, a Matthew twenty three twenty three uh like, seasoning where it, like, has those three things and you're, you know, they're like, if you put it on your food, you're extra blessed. Sorry, uh, you know, there's there's Ezekiel <laughs> bread and stuff like that. So, at any rate, we guys, we, we have to have a talk about uh, a product placement later. All right. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> so when one of the things that I, I see in a lot of uh, the reviews, for instance, Leroy, about this book is about um, the availability of understanding the lectionary better by approaching your book, both for people who have to, uh, you know, make homilies like priests, but even the lay faithful in the pews. Uh, around this same time, of course, there's something making the old rounds in Twitter about uh, someone did a study about the average length of sermons in the different denominations and then with Catholicism and, um, <laughs> you know, the priests, Catholics have the shortest homilies and then is this good, is this bad? And then this big question about, you know, have we been doing preaching well or not? Um, so since your book, whether you meant this or not, sort of speaks to this moment about how do we do a better job of making the lectionary come alive, what what did you do or what did you hope that your book does that will allow both people who have to give homilies, but people who have to, uh, who want to get a deeper understanding of the lectionary, um, how is this book going to help them do that? Yeah, so my academic work, I've always wanted to do it for the, the sake of a church, and so I've been giving, you know, presentations in the past several years to uh, clergy, you know, uh, priests, deacons, deacon trainees, if you will, candidates, you know, run around um, the country doing that, and I thought, well, you know, I'm giving all these presentations on the Gospels, you know, oriented towards clergy and to try and support their preaching and teaching. Maybe I should write these up into a couple of books. Um, and so I, I wrote them, I hope, in a more popular and less academic way. Um, and what I do in each, uh, my book on Mark, Loosing the Lion, and this one on Matthew, Behold the Christ, I have an opening part of a couple or a few chapters where I talk about the contemporary situation, right, in the uh, early 21st century here, because each of the Gospels, by its own constitution, presents a certain challenge to the spirit of our age. And, of course, that's always going to happen, because the spirit of the age throughout history is never um, God's spirit until, you know, kingdom come in the future. Right, so with the book on Matthew, I talk about contemporary American Gnosticism, right, how we're a people that doesn't like ritual, that doesn't like the body, and doesn't know what to do with it. Uh, and Matthew presents an incipient challenge to that by its very constitution. Then what I do, because I am convinced the Gospels are uh, stories, true stories, not simply collections of sayings, but they're stories with beginning and ending and plot and conflict and characterization and resolution and all that stuff we learned in seventh grade literature class. I just storm through the gospel from the first verse to the last verse, um, dealing with each passage, and then I key it to the lectionary, meaning I simply tell you, you know, what Sunday or what weekday, uh, what feast or festival this uh, reading is found on. So I follow the gospel's own uh, outline and structure, uh, but I do key it to the lectionary. And, you know, I, what I've tried to do is give the sweep of each passage um, instead of paying attention to every single detail like you'd find in a critical commentary. So you get two, three, or four pages on what's going on in this passage. Um, and I hope that's helpful, you know, for preachers who are, uh, you know, prepping their homilies, as well as for lay people who uh, pay attention to the Mass readings. Leroy, one thing I've really appreciated about your work is how you um, connect the Old and New Testaments. And I know you inherited um, this methodology in a lot of ways from your mentor, Richard Hayes at Duke. Um, An Oklahoma. For me, like, sorry. Geez. What's that? He's from Oklahoma, just pointing out. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> 
for me, when I first started getting into this, like the echoes of the Old Testament and the New, it's really challenging as a reader, but also very exciting once you start to see some of these connections. And the New Testament writers really assume in a lot of ways that their um, that their readers are familiar with the Old. But could you talk some about how the Old is operative and what Matthew's doing narratively in his Gospel? Yeah, so Matthew's Gospel is a Gospel of fulfillment. Uh, you find the word fulfill or fulfillment all over the place. And so Matthew will draw on the Old Testament a lot to show you how Jesus and the Church... Uh, fulfill pretty much everything going on in the Old Testament. So Jesus is presented as a new Moses, a new Isaac, um, a new Joshua, so on and so forth. And Matthew will do this in a couple complementary ways. The obvious one is quotation, right? So the Virgin Mary conceives, and you get a quotation uh, from Isaiah 7:14. Um, Behold, the Virgin will be of child and bear a son, right? And he will be called Emmanuel which means God with us, you know, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. You know, so Matthew makes sure you can't miss it. The other way is more subtle, more fascinating in some ways, um, and that's allusion, where Matthew doesn't quote something, but he alludes to something in the Old Testament. And, you know, this is a feature of all great literature, you know, uh, ancient, modern, secular, religious. You know, allusion is just part and parcel of what it means to write and speak. And so in the, for instance, in the announcement to Joseph uh, that Mary's going to bear this son, the angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Uh, she's conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will bear you a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And if you look at Genesis 17, 19, uh, you get very similar language. God says to Abraham, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. So Matthew 1 there alludes back to Genesis 17, and it sets up this fourfold typology with four uh, characters in parallel with another four. So, you know, God is a type of the angel of the Lord. Um, Joseph, excuse me, Abraham is a type of Joseph. Uh, Sarah is a type of Mary, and Isaac is a type of Jesus. So, Leroy, uh, with the idea not only of um, how fulfillment works. Uh, I'm, I'm going to now ask you a question that just comes to my mind. It's been egging on me, and I think that this will go to show viewers why you're the precise guy for the job to like read this book and, and have a deeper understanding. So it comes to Isaac, right? We're in the season of Advent. Not Isaac, Isaiah, excuse me. Isaiah really is the prophet of, of Advent, not only in many people's readings, but certainly I know most monastic communities read through the entirety of Isaiah and Advent uh, because of its sort of uh, importance of the prophecy of the coming of Jesus. Um, you see this, like you said, all throughout Matthew. I just happened to read uh, John chapter 12 yesterday, and forthrightly, John actually says, I, Isaiah, saw Christ's glory. And then, you know, people argue, as he's saying that he saw a vision of Christ, whatever. But the idea is John is directly relating it and saying that, no, Isaiah was making these predictions, and they were exactly about Jesus Christ. So my question to you is... Is this like, I mean, did Christians really sort of up the 
the ante when it came to how important Isaiah's prophecies were? Or, you know, had Jews of the time already saw that Isaiah was this important uh, prophet and then, you know, Christians are sort of relaying this? I, I just wonder, like, what's the, the status of Isaiah when the Christians come and then start quoting Isaiah all over the place to point to the fulfillment of the Messiah and Jesus? Yeah, one thing that I'm I'm ever more convinced of is that uh, Old Testament prophecies of Jesus aren't obvious. You will see them once you have Jesus and once you believe in Jesus. Uh, but we do need to cut, uh, you know, our Jewish friends some slack here when they don't see the connection because they're not always obvious. Um, you know, again, a great example is Isaiah seven fourteen. Uh, nobody read that as a messianic prophecy until Christians did. Now, there's other parts in Isaiah that were read as messianic prophecies, like Isaiah 61, uh, which Jesus reads in Luke 4 in the synagogue, right? right? You know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, so on and so forth. Uh, but with Isaiah 7:14 in Matthew, in its original context in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is speaking of his uh, own children as a sign uh, born by uh, his own wife, presumably, you know, non-virginal, um, and it's directed towards uh, King Hezekiah and the Assyrian threat. You know, so how does Matthew get away with using that? Well, it's, it's more fascinating, I think, than simply like, oh, here's a prophecy and Jesus fulfilled it. Matthew is seeing real parallels between Isaiah's day under Hezekiah and Jesus' day under the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day and King Herod. Um, you had, back in the day, uh, corrupt and fearful leadership, uh, and Israel uh, basically failing left, right, and center to keep the covenant. And in Jesus' day, Matthew thinks it's likewise. You have a corrupt, feckless leadership, and a whole lot of people uh, failing to keep the covenant. And so he's able, then, to see in Jesus, like, a second fulfillment of this these words, what becomes a prophecy. It was fulfilled in Isaiah's day and re-fulfilled by Jesus. Now, some people, you know, might wish it were neater and cleaner than that, but here's something really fascinating that, you know, I, I think of often. If what I'm saying uh, is correct, then it looks like things like the virgin birth actually happened. If those, th- if those prophecies were obvious, then it would be so easy to say, oh, early Christians just took, took these obvious prophecies and made stuff up to make it look like Jesus uh, and his coming was fulfilling prophecy. But actually it's like, well, you know, maybe you had a real historical virgin birth, and then given that fact, Matthew and other early Christians go through the Old Testament to see if it's uh, foretold anywhere. And lo and behold, Isaiah 7.14. No, I think that that's great. We're running out of time. The last thing I want to throw out is is Isaiah 45 is written to Cyrus about the Savior coming from the east. And, of course, like they're literally meaning Cyrus is going to come and like wipe out Babylon and, and kick mm-hmm. him out of Israel. But then you have this other layer of narrative where you're like, no, but there's also the one Christ, Christ who comes from the east, right? Like the, the sun and, and everything else that we talk about in the liturgy. Um, all of this is to say that if we open our eyes to how the depth in which we can read the scriptures and how the Old and the New Testament really do speak to each other and that that was the purpose, um, 
that we'll be able to see things we never did. And that's precisely what you do so well in your book, Leroy. So one more time, because we've got to go, uh, the name of the book and where people can pick it up. Behold the Christ, Proclaiming the Gospel of Matthew. And it's available online at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, as well as uh, your favorite online retailer. So Dr. Leroy Husengay, thank you for coming back on the show, and I really do hope people apprise themselves of your book. God bless. Yep, thanks, thanks so much for having me. This is The Uncommon Bye-bye. Good. Thank you all uh, for listening. May Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, in our families, our city, our state, solar system, galaxy, the whole kit and caboodle. This is The Uncommon Good, and we'll be back next week. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcasts. Just search for The Uncommon Good.